But when it comes from someone who's done it and who's not related to them and not their parent, they gravitate to it more or they more tend to listen. And so I'm finding myself now being that surrogate parent for not, and interns, uh, for <laughs> interns and kids now. So I've, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting period in life. I'd rather my kids listen to you than me. So um, I'll definitely <laughs> I'd have my unborn kids listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> We need to be doing that, a podcast that combines sports, social media content, and life. I'm Jonah Ballo. I'm Keith Steckler. I'm Elliot Gerard. We Need to Be Doing That is a Heartland Group production. Come on. We need to be doing that. Wow, what a great day when we can bring on this guest, Veda Manager, founder of Manager at Global Holdings, a man that has been in the room in negotiations with Nike, has met Nelson Mandela. But of course, today is his crowning achievement to be on our podcast with myself, Keith, and Elliot. Right, Veda? Uh, no, look, it's great to be with you all. Uh, look, we're all <laughs> out here just trying to make the world better. <laughs> you know, we met at the Sports PR Summit where Heartland Group was there to make a, a presentation as well as create some artwork that we made for Veda. And boy, when we met with you and just your enthusiasm, the way you express yourself about the job, some insight into the different types of businesses that you've been involved in. It was really just such a great conversation. We we said that day, we needed you on the podcast and have more people hear your story. Let's start there. A synopsis sort of of, you know, how you got to this point, you know, the experience that you've had in your career thus far. Well, look, I, again, appreciate the invitation to chat with you all. I really enjoyed meeting you all at the Sports PR Summit. That was a very special day for me for a couple of reasons. One, uh, when you start to get these Lifetime Achievement Awards, it's a culmination of a kind of a body of work and a recognition that you're old uh, in, in one respect and older, but at the same <laughs> time, you have an opportunity to impart some knowledge and wisdom to, and particularly with since there were college students in the room, impart some wisdom to them about how they plot their careers and how they can, shall we say, uh, coexist doing good by doing well. And that's really kind of been a mantra of mine. Uh, grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, um, kind of a, a bit of an impoverished uh, city, but one with a lot of promise and hope. You might know that city because one of the greatest female athletes from there, Jackie Jonah Kersey, uh, went, uh, is from there as well as a native. Um, and her sister-in-law, Flojo, who still holds one of the great records in track and field, is from there as well. Kellen Winslow, uh, you, you may know from the great San Diego Charger days, is from there as well. So we've had a lot of great athletes. We also had a lot of great innovators in, in, um, in music and in academia and business and film. Uh, Miles Davis is from there. Richie Hudlin, who produced Django Unchained and Boomerang and House Party, some cult uh, cultural classics, is from there. So it's a small crucible of a community, but uh, that's where we grew up and, and uh, went to school there, came to Arizona State where I had just tremendous amount of support and success. Um, and um, by my third year, was already on the Board of Regents, which governed the universities, served two governors here, uh, went to Washington, D.C., and then was able to work and help Nelson Mandela transition in during his time when he got out of prison and became president of South Africa. Uh, so I've had just a number Amazing. of great experiences. Got recruited to Nike, where I've worked with Michael Jordan. I've worked with Mario Lemieux, worked with LeBron, uh, work with so many other namesake athletes out there and kind of continue that work in the sports business arena today. I'm going to throw my resume in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> 
But let's let's That's let's jump unreal. to I think your transition to Nike because I think that really is one of the most interesting aspects of your career. And there's been a lot of stories that have been told about you know the origins of Nike and how it became the number one sports apparel brand in this country. From your standpoint, how did that all unfold, and how did you get involved with Nike and insight into those uh, those boardrooms? You know, a- absolutely. Um, Nike was probably by far my 12 years there some of the most interesting and impactful work that I've ever done. Uh, and it's um, met a lot of great people there that I still remain close friends with. Uh, obviously, Nike was born around 1972 as a company. Uh, and that story is well chronicled in Phil, Phil Knight's uh, book, Shoe Dog, and other books that have, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners and you yourselves may have read it, uh, an amazing story of how he just uh, scrimped and saved, but also was persistent in his pursuit of thinking he can do something better than Adidas and Asics and uh, Onizuka Tiger, some of the origins, some of the people who were the dominant players in the sportswear and footwear business at the time. I was recruited there in 1997 uh, while I was at Levi's. Levi's was kind of considered, shall we say, the gold standard of apparel sourcing and the apparel side of the business at, at Nike was growing faster than the footwear side. So they wanted someone to come up, uh, not only to provide some of that insight, but also, uh, as you know, Nike was going through a very difficult period during that 1990s where they were being accused of, because the company was growing so fast, of not looking after the people in Asia and other parts of the world where they were sourcing uh, these products. So I was kind of brought in to kind of help advise Phil Knight and the company on that front. And we were able to, uh, I would say over a period of time, and I remember talking to Phil Knight in his office uh, when we talked about this process, I told him, look, um, uh, you didn't get into the situation because your business model overnight, and it's not going to be an overnight quick silver bullet fix to get out of it. And uh, I said, you don't, you turn the Queen Mary around like a Corvette. It's going to take about five to seven years. And our team and I, it was about that when we began to show up again on social responsible investor lists and the stories began to turn around and, and other situations that began to show that colleges wanted to be affiliated with Nike again, et cetera. It had gotten to a point where some employees didn't want to even want to go home to their Thanksgiving dinners and talk about where they worked because of all the negative headlines and adverse publicity around Nike. And I'm really pleased that we're able to turn that around over a period of time. Part of that was was working directly with uh, Michael Jordan and going to China with him. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it, it, one of the uh, interesting innovations at the time, uh, and this was before YouTube and other things existed, is that we uh, were able to put cameras in some of those factories where, again, not everybody gets a chance to go to China, Vietnam, Indonesia, some of the places where Nike was dominant in sourcing. And so given that, uh, we put some cameras in those in those factories. But I also discovered during the course of my background and research, Michael had never been to the factories uh, where his iconic Air Jordans were made. So I said, look, let's take him over there because he was getting a microphone stuck in his face often uh, asking, all right, do you trust Nike? Have you seen it? How can you trust what they're doing? And I said, you know, this is to me a fundamental and basic fix. Let's take him over. And we took him over to Vietnam and China uh, and Hong Kong. And he was able to see it for himself and was able to come back and answer those questions with authenticity and with authority. And I think he appreciated the opportunity to kind of learn more about the business and how his, uh, his, how his products were made. Great. And that was all from you. You came up with that concept of like, Jordan, um, you heard that and you were like, let's do it. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I, we all at Nike worked through teams, but we were sitting around a table, and when that issue came up that Michael had never been, now, again, it's not easy to get Michael Jordan with no publicity into any country, uh, even back then, because, you know, as you know, he was even closer to his playing career than he is now. So to get it yeah. in uh, on a private jet and to have it be low-key, uh, it, it was quite a feat. We were able to pull it off. But once it got there, obviously news got around. Obviously, you're dealing with governments, and they had to approve visas and things like that. So we had a crowd on the tarmac uh, in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, <laughs> as well as in, um, uh, in, in Hong Kong, as well as in, uh, in Guangzhou, uh, China. So basically, you built the whole um... – Chinese basketball fandom is all is all because of you. <laughs> no, I can't take credit for that. Uh, and, and again, and also knowing that you did have at some point, and it did later come to pass that China was going to at some point be a global sports player. And as you know, in 2008, they did win the Beijing Olympics. So it was really kind of laying a groundwork for Nike be able to answer those questions, deal with those questions. Uh, a little known factoid that people don't know: I mean, in in the run up to the 2008 Olympics. Nike was opening a retail store, a partnership uh, at one and a half stores a day in the run up to that Olympics, just to be sure they had wow. enough product to meet consumer demand and enough um, dominance in that market because the market was growing so fast. And China is a unique exception. As many people know, um, it is probably one of the biggest basketball markets in the country. If we've got, what, 230 million people in the United States, 200 million people of the billion people in China play basketball. So just wow. reconcile those statistics for a minute. You can see why they were ramping up and making sure that basketball and personalities like LeBron and Kobe and others uh, really had great Nike affiliation in that country. I always love these stories because you you hear the finished version of it, right? And and maybe where it was, but sometimes it's hard to, you know, I love watching documentaries, but sometimes it's hard to go back in time and say, did the person, uh, whether it's yourself or a Phil Knight, have the foresight to say, we have a, a brand or a company that could become the greatest sports apparel company in the world? Or was this a steady process that had trials and tribulations along the way? And maybe in the back of your head, you're thinking it. I mean, what was going through your mind during that period of time early on? Like, I, I know Michael Jordan, once he hit and, and those shoes hit the market, Nike took off. But was there a belief that this company was going to take on the other competitors in a way that we've never seen before? Well, I think you have to start from the fundamental belief uh, that, first of all, I think Nike looks at itself almost as having, and it's true, having innovated the sports marketing sector. So they really didn't, in many ways, compare themselves to anyone else. It was really about listening to the voice of the consumer and primarily listening to the voice of the athlete. If you look on any box of Nike footwear and on the tags of many apparel, it'll say engineered to the championship specifications of athletes. So it's really about listening to that voice of the athlete and being guided by that in terms of design of performance products, design, and then having, and then telling that story so that that can translate into consumer demand. And I think another smart thing that Nike did uh, and recognized, um, and that was something that while I was there was adopt what they call were the Nike maxims. And I, and I won't go through all 10 of them or 12 of them, I think, but one of the main ones I think that really embraced inclusivity more so than you would see from other companies and made Nike kind of the, the go-to brand for companies is that if you have a body, you're an athlete. And what that says is that if you're a pregnant mother 
pushing a baby carriage or just had your baby and want to kind of get back fit and in shape, you're an athlete. You're out there pushing it. You might have your running shoes on or whatever else. If you want to author a book, there's an athletic and a mental mindset around accomplishment and just doing it that you need to have. So that level of embrace and inclusivity, I think, really catapulted the brand to another level and really set it apart from the Reeboks and the Adidas's and the Under Armors and other competitors out there. And which is why you can still see um, today uh, Nike is still on top. In addition to some very smart business moves, such as how they manage their supply chain, how they've innovated in certain markets and, uh, and how they continue to just deliver day after day on things and then rely upon, again, some of the iconic brands you just talked about, Air Force Ones. I mean, how many basketball shoes that can, with a blank canvas of a white leather shoe, so many things you can do with that and innovate and make it custom, such as the Puerto Rican Day Parade and put a flag on it or a Black History Month palette. So many things you can do with that blank canvas and as well as other shoes to make it iconic and special and just create consumer demand across generations now because not only the parents and grandparents have grown up with that, the kids who didn't experience the first versions want that as well. And that's true for the Air Jordans. At what age were you doing this? Uh, you know, I, I'm 60 now, so 97. I probably was in my 30s, 40s when I was uh, at, at Nike. Yeah, I've been gone about 11 years. Yeah. So you were a pretty young man at that point. I mean, it's pretty heady stuff. Like, I know the man we see today, very confident, your 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 ability to articulate the experiences and, and all the different facets to the business. But the man you were then, did you have that same sort of uh, presence inside a room? Well, you know, I, I have to say, because of the job that I was given at Nike, there wasn't a lot of margin for being either uncomfortable in your skin or being someone that lacked confidence. Um, and you have to remember, even before I arrived at Nike, it already served two governors. Um, uh, and I had sat in rooms, quite frankly, where we had to decide death penalties or commutations. That, mm -hmm. that was in my late 20s. So when you have sat in those kind of rooms making decisions about people's livelihoods in the state of Arizona, I, I was uh, press secretary to Governor Rose Mofford. You might remember the great sports story where the NFL pulled the Super Bowl out of Arizona because of this lack of adoption of a Martin Luther King holiday. Back then, they later restored it uh, to the state. But when you're involved in those kind of high stakes uh, deals and high stakes situations, uh, you know, by the time I got to Nike, I won't say I was fully formed, but unlike a lot of people, I'd already been somewhat battle tested. So uh, it, it was just another global level for me. I'd, I'd love to hear about um, more about the Nelson Mandela experience. I mean, that, you know, talk about <laughs> Michael Jordan's uh, one, of, one of the greatest athletes, but uh, Mandela is one of the greatest people, you know, in, in, in our history. So yeah, Elliot, I think that on the head. That. Um, I, I've been around a lot of great athletes and a lot of great personalities, but let's just pause for a minute and say, I don't think we'll ever see again an individual who sacrificed 27 years of his life for his beliefs and his convictions, had opportunities to leave prison if he would have capitulated to that at that time, the apartheid government given up his compatriots in the African National Congress or acceded to certain statements, but he refused to do so and stayed in prison until 
the blight of apartheid was removed from the country, which then allowed a one-person, one-vote system to be implemented there. And you have to give the world community a lot of credit here. If you think about it, and again, this goes back to the experiences I had. While I was in the governor's office, uh, I also managed, uh, one of the agencies I managed was the pension fund. And so like Arizona, like many other pension funds around the country, made decisions to divest investments from South Africa to put pressure on them to release Nelson Mandela and also other stock markets and companies refused to invest there. Companies were pulling out of the country. So it economically starved the country and isolated it until they did right by the citizens there and released Mandela. Look, no one really trains Nelson Mandela. My job to go there was to assist his cabinet and to assist him because they had been revolutionaries, Elliot. They had never run a government. They had been revolutionaries on the outside for Mm -hmm. many years. All the levers of power, the newspapers, the companies, everything else were owned by kind of the white apartheid structure. So what we were trying to do was bring some kind of U.S. governance and U.S. media and political know-how to them, uh, which they greatly appreciated as they were about to take the reins of government governance in that country to try to help level the playing field. But really, the economic uh, levers were still in the hands of other people. But that was kind of my assignment. I greatly enjoyed that experience. He's a tremendously measured man. uh, But again, I just admire him so much for his conviction, Mm -hmm. what he gave up and just had appreciated the opportunity to to be with him on uh, three different occasions, uh, both in Washington, as well as in South Africa. And, and And he signed for me. Uh, and I have it hanging um, in a treasured place. Uh, if you might, if you go back and or your listeners can Google as well, as he was emerging from Robben Island, which is the island isolated prison right off the coast of South Africa, where they kept all the political prisoners and prisoners, et cetera. Uh, when he got out, uh, there's a picture of him with his wife, then wife Winnie, with a raised fist on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, I had that at the Washington Hotel room and he signed that cover for me. And it was probably one of my most treasured possessions that I will put in my estate that my kids should never sell or my kids should never uh, dispense with. It's probably, it's probably worth a lot. Uh, you know, he signed so, a lot of stuff. So I, you know, the, the monetary value of it, Elliot is probably negligible because <laughs> uh, he signed a lot of things. He did artwork, he signed autographs, but the sentimental value and just the immense um, uh, personal value of that to me and my family means a lot. Of course. No, that's that's special. Um, how, when was this in your career when when you did this? So, was this uh, before or after Nike? Yeah, this would have been before Nike. Yes, this would have been about 93, 94, somewhere around there. Yeah. OK, cool. again. So uh, when you asked the question earlier about being in the rooms and the boardrooms and uh, being and working <laughs> at Nike, having done the things with Mandela, being in those kind of settings, uh, as I mentioned, sitting around tables with my colleagues, figuring out criminal justice and commutations and death penalties. By the time I got to Nike and dealing with sports, um, I won't say it was easy, but it was, um, I had already had some experiences, some challenging moments. I'd have to go back into like grade school, school, (laughs) uh, maybe at the lunch table. Did you have this kind of confidence there in sixth grade? I mean, we have to go further back. What what has been your driving force? Tell us a little bit about your you know growing up and and how how this all came about. I mean, it's it, there's so many ways we can take the direction, and we wanted to get you know your story and some of these these moments out of of career achievements. But personally, how did you become the man that you are today? Well, you know, I, 
I operate, and I think one of the maxims I operate from and often talk about uh, to college students and others are, are really two things. Uh, one is I operate from an attitude of gratitude. Um, uh, I almost drowned twice when I was a kid um, at a local swimming pool. I had also an unfortunate uh, incident where I could have lost my life in another uh, situation in a public park. Uh, you know, I won't go into detail here, but uh, I think those things that happen when you're 11, 12, 13, and 14 really do, really do focus kind of your purpose in life and your gratitude for being here and what kind of impact you want to have not only in your life, but also to try to make life better for others. And so when you talk about those early experiences, um, uh, that, that really is kind of what drives me. I come from a family that also um, uh, gave me a spiritual grounding, uh, church and uh, choir and and things like that. So I think those things also made an impact on my grandparents. I grew up in a multi-generational household. Uh, in fact, we had one of those big brick Midwestern East St. Louis homes where my great-grandfather lived on the top floor, and I remember watching Elvis Presley movies and Muhammad Ali movies, and Muhammad Ali fights with him on the top floor. On the middle floor was my maternal great-grandmother and my grandparents, and on the bottom floor were my mother and I. So when you have that kind of multi-generational experience, it really does have an impact upon your respect for uh, the wisdom of, of senior citizens and also uh, people that uh, they imparted a sense of community service to me. My mother at 85, Ethel uh, back in um, East St. Louis, still at 85, still serves as the chair of a community public health board. So that's also where I get my sense of service. I serve on both corporate boards like Valvoline Inc. Uh, and also the predecessor company Ashland Inc. But I also serve on community boards um, as well. And also some education foundation boards like the Helios Education Foundation. Uh, and also some boards related to my alma mater, Arizona State University. So the attitude of gratitude, the sense of community service, but also I operate from a sense of, and I think uh, being here with you today is also a sense, and you all witnessed it, I think, a bit at the Lifetime Achievement Ceremony, is that at some level, all business is personal. Now, if your viewers, if this were a video podcast, I would do something I often do with, uh, with uh, students and convocation speakers. I would hold up my iPhone, and I may have done this, and I don't remember if I did it at the, at the ceremony, but it, I would hold up my iPhone and say, all right, how many people do you think are in my contacts in this iPhone? And I would point out some people, and I would say, all right, you guess. Um, Kathy, you guess. And I, they'd give me a guess of 500. Or Johnny, you guess. And they'd give me a guess of 1,200. Really, the answer is, as of probably yesterday, 12. 1,100 people in my phone. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets a holiday card, doesn't mean everybody gets a card or a call every week, but over the years, I've accumulated uh, and built some pretty special and interesting relationships. And when others in college were going out on the bars on Friday night, again, I don't disparage that. You're, it's your college, it's fun, you're supposed to have fun. I did a little of that too. But when I would go to receptions, when I would go to events and things like that, I would meet people. I would get business cards. I would listen and talk to them. I would note uh, if their kids were in college or how many kids they had or what their wife's name were. And I would take that information and go back. And you guys are too young for a computer called a, a Radio Shack TRS-80. You might know it, uh, Atari, but that was one of the predecessor early pre-Apple, uh, pre-computer, pre personal computers out there. And I would enter that information in the database. And over the years, I would export that database and roll it over, 
many, many years till now. We obviously have the great window system and Outlook and other things like that and the iPhones. But over the years, that's kind of how I accumulated my relationships. And I have to say, many of those relationships have come back and have been beneficial to me in life. I've stayed in touch with a lot of people. If you look at any of my social media, I often have people commenting from friends who were in high school or pre-high school or friends I grew up with. So I tell my kids all the time, you just never know who along the way is going to impact your life and what kind of relationships are going to change your life. And that's certainly been the case for me um, in every case. My board chair today at the Helios Education Foundation, we'd have never known this years later, he was my financial aid officer at Arizona State University. Uh, He sat across the desk from me, gave me a Pell Grant. He followed my career. I followed him. He built a successful business. And then some 30 years later, he invited me to join the board of the Helios Education Foundation. You just so you just don't know at one point how those relationships are going to impact your life. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't. yeah, don't uh, don't realize uh, that uh, that that importance of like every moment. You know, they don't they don't they don't live in the moment in that way. I guess. Uh, so yeah, and it shows. It shows that obviously uh, helped you get where you are now. Yeah, no, again, I've been very blessed, very fortunate. Uh, life is also about timing as much as it is talent. Um, uh, people who want to be in elected office, um, if there's no seat to run for, or there's an incumbent there that is uh, very popular and they can't unseat them, uh, then their timing may not be good. They may have the talent, but their timing may not be good. Or let's say in corporate, you want to take your, you want to ascend to your boss's job, but your boss is doing a great job and may not be moving there. But if your boss gets promoted, then you've got the talent, then the timing is good for you. You have that opportunity to apply and be considered for that job. So you also have to be aware and have a sense of both, not only uh, be, I guess, aware of your, your talent and continue to develop your skills, but also be aware of the timing opportunity. Yeah, and speaking of, of moments, you've had quite a few moments in your career. I, I was trying to think, guys, we've done almost 40 episodes. I'm not sure we've had a Hall of Famer on, on the podcast before, <laughs> but you are in Arizona State's Hall of Fame which is incredible. Of all the stuff you just mentioned, there's there's just more layers to it. Um, I'm sure you've done some stuff in motorsports, whether albeit by Valvoline or otherwise. What's been one of the biggest sports moments you've you've witnessed? Uh, well, if you're just mentioning motorsports, uh, I just had the great privilege uh, uh, in June of racing in what's called the Urban Youth Racing School in Philadelphia's Grand Prix. And the captain of my uh, of my team, we had several all number of NASCAR drivers who were formed at different teams, and these were go karts. These weren't, uh, but they go karts that went 60 miles an hour on a course. Uh, but uh, these weren't NASCARs. But the captain of my team was Kyle Larson, the current NASCAR Cup Series champion, uh, and he's someone I actually had a previous relationship with as he was getting. Uh, rehabilitated to rejoin NASCAR and get reinstated there. And that's a whole nother story for another time. But uh, we came in third in that uh, in that Grand Prix. But to drive around the track at high speeds and to be captained and, and mentored by uh, Kyle Larson, uh, Chase Elliott was at that event as well. Uh, another great NASCAR uh, racer. We had uh, Alex Bowman was there. He captained another team. So we've had a number of great experiences in that. But to be able to drive and to do that, and I've actually been around the Charlotte Motor Speedway racetrack, uh, around the track uh, in uh, one of the Hendrick Motorsports cars with Alex driving and taking me at high speeds uh, around those banks and everything else. And if you've never done that, I would say 
uh, find an experience and, and do that. It's really just kind of one of those bucket list thrills in life to be in a NASCAR and you really have a great appreciation for, and we were just the only car on the track. So if you think about it, you know, how they are jostling along with the other racers out there at high rates of speed and the risk and the rewards of that. Uh, wow. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. So that, that, that's a pretty great sports moment um, you know, for me. Uh, I've had a number of different ones, but uh, that, let, let me say, let, let me just speak in the, in the recency of that one since that happened just in, just in June. Uh, and it was a lot of fun uh, passing NASCAR drivers and passing off and watching my time versus theirs and passing the car off to another driver. I don't usually like to talk about regrets or ask people about regrets, but is there anything along this amazing journey in your life that maybe you would have zigged when you should have zagged or maybe a, a moment in time where, wow, if I would have done this, it would have gone this direction. Is there any of those moments that you, you can reflect on? Well, and, and I agree with you. I don't know that I uh, necessarily live with uh, regrets either. Um, uh, I try to use every, and if you're not failing, you're not learning. Uh, I think that's another thing I've taken away is that everybody who's been successful, look, uh, we talked about Michael Jordan earlier. Yeah, I think it's the World Chronicle story of, of him getting cut from his high school basketball team, which drove him to be better. Uh, I think after college, after undergraduate at Arizona State University, I did uh, enroll in the law school there. And I think my ambition was to be a lawyer, like many uh, people with a political science degree coming out of uh, a liberal arts college um, uh, or the college at, uh, at Arizona State. But uh, the political book caught up with me. I'd already, as I mentioned, had worked for a governor. And um, again, it's about talent and timing. Governor Bruce Babbitt in the 1988 uh, race, it was an open race. Ronald Reagan was uh, leaving after two terms of being president. So there was openings on both the Republican side and Democratic side for the nomination. And um, uh, so it was an open seat. So Governor Babbitt, who was my governor and boss at the time, decided to uh, run for president. So I decided to leave law school. I was the third youngest in the class. So I said, all right, hey, I'm young. I can always go back to law school. Uh, and uh, let me go and try this presidential campaign because if he catches on and he was a, a, a he was as favored as anyone else at that time. Actually, Joe Biden was in that race. Uh, uh, if you think about it, back in 1988. Um, so I used to in debate wow. prep. Yeah. Uh, in addition to preparing Governor Babbitt for the other candidates in that race, like J uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, I would often use the briefing books of Joe Biden to prepare Governor Babbitt for those debates along with my other colleagues. So it's, it's always interesting to see President Biden on television now thinking about the fact that he was a candidate for president at that time and we competed against him in that, uh, in that primary. But, um, but yeah, he ran like 12 times, right? Or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and look, and that's another lesson too, Elliot, that uh, you can be wrong a lot of times, but all it takes to be is to be right at once. And he yeah, made the yeah, right decision yeah. to be vice president to President Obama. And we saw that play out yesterday yes. on television. Uh, and then that, that really led him to be the right candidate to be president. So uh, so I guess if I have any regrets, I, I thought about I should have gone back to law school. But in, with any regret, you have to think about what would not have happened if you would have made that decision or if you'd been widely successful at law school. I might not have ever gone to Levi's. I might never have ever gone to Nike. And I treasure those and value those experiences so much. Um, and I, I guess the consolation I give myself to end that story is that particularly when I was at Nike and we were in the midst of a lot of litigation and I used to advise the general counsel and the legal team, and particularly during the whole Michael Jordan trip discussion, we were in the midst of litigation right now. And I know I had a, a number of Harvard and Stanford um, $1,200 an hour lawyers telling me, ah, you know, maybe we shouldn't take Michael there. It'll make him a, uh, a target for deposition. 
uh, in this lawsuit. And I says, look, we're going to do this. I think it's the right thing to do. So I take comfort in the fact that although I didn't go to law school, I had $1,200 an hour lawyers from Harvard and Stanford that had to listen to what I had to say. So, <laughs> so maybe, uh, and I have a lot of lawyers also tell me that, hey, I would love to do what you do. So maybe I did make the right decision go. after all. <laughs> I, I think we all agree. <laughs> You had some great wisdom that you handed out at the Sports PR Summit and on this podcast. And I always, uh, you know, this has only been our second time. I feel like I've known you for for a lot longer, but always feel like there's a, some gems, right, that you can pull out and, and utilize in, in your own life. And so I like listening to to your story. Is there any advice, you know, a younger generation? We, we see a lot of things shifting now. Uh, I don't know if we want to call it the great resignation, if that's maybe overblown, but people are starting to take maybe more control of their career and their lives and balancing that out with the personal aspects uh, from where we sit today in this world that we're, we're in, which seems to be <laughs> changing by the minute. Um, do you have any advice to, to the younger generation now that's coming up? Yeah. And I think I've mentioned a few gyms along the way, but I'll uh, kind of try to concretize uh, a few things here is I think I talked earlier about all business being personal. And I think, again, I talked about the financial aid officer who 30 years later is still my friend and inviting me to the board. Um, I think that's one. Two, you know, be grateful and have an attitude of gratitude and also be inclusive. I think young people today have a greater opportunity to widen their circle, listen to people and spend time with people who aren't necessarily like them, uh, who may not have grown up in the same situations or circumstances as they have, and to learn from them in order to really make this world less divisive and more inclusive. I, I think that is a great opportunity for them. And I think young people are leading the way in that sense. Uh, maybe once some of us old dinosaurs uh, uh, die out or go away or retire, that um, they have have the opportunity to lead the way in that instance. Uh, I think one of the things I also mentioned at that event was the fact that um, don't defend what you don't help to define. Now, that might be tougher for a younger professional, but I did have I had some situations in my career where, uh, particularly in an agency or otherwise, where individuals um, wanted me to engage in things, but I wasn't involved in the early decision that got them into that trouble. Uh, so if I'm with an institution and I'm with a company or I'm with a firm, uh, and that's what I kind of do now in terms of my crisis consulting, I obviously I may not have been there at the decision making, but I kind of give them advice and dispense advice to help them get them out of that situation. And it's not just about the spin of it or the media side of it. It's also about programmatically how to change their practices and change what they've done so they don't have themselves find themselves in that situation again. Uh, so when I say don't defend what you didn't help define, that's for someone who's at a company, speak up, state your voice, state your value. So and if you are going to have to make a decision, which is a difficult decision, be sure you're at the table that you all have fully kind of thought out all the ramifications of that decision. And that way you're bought into helping to define it so that if you have to go out and defend it, you feel that much more comfortable. Because I've seen situations where uh, people are sent out to a podium to defend something they had no hand in in creating. Wow. Some great actionable advice there. Love it. Where can folks listening to this podcast follow you on social media and potentially a website? Um, let us know where we can, can find you. Yeah, no, I'm uh, very accessible. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Adveda Manager. I am also on Instagram, I think by the same uh, handle. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I try to devote, again, a fair amount of my time to 
uh, mentoring and helping people. I just met with a former ASU basketball player at lunch last Friday who's thinking about his post-career as he's playing overseas right now. And uh, and what I'm actually, it's an interesting time for me. I'm actually spending a fair amount of time with the kids of fellow professionals uh, that I that either I've known or grown up with. They're sending their kids to me to say, all right, can you give <laughs> my son or daughter or my child some advice about their careers and their direction? Uh, because, and, and I understand that it's not because I've got anything so great to say and, and you all may have kids or I think you all are much younger than I am, but sometimes coming from someone that's not their parents, they may have been saying the same thing to them that whole entire time, mm. but when it comes from someone who's done it and who's not related to them and not their parent, they gravitate to it more or they more tend to listen. And so I'm finding myself now being that surrogate parent for and interns uh, for <laughs> interns and kids now. So I've, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting period in life. But um, look, um, as I think uh, great presidential candidate Shirley Chisholm and others have said, uh, service is the rent you pay for your time here on earth. Um, so I think that might be an appropriate point, uh, you know, to just to close that particular part out. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information. 